I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 59 for December. Uh, I'm Duncan, and I always remember the first time that I could see that even Christmas was corrupted was when I went to the uh, VHS store, rental store, and saw Silent Night, Deadly Night. Uh-huh. And the VHS cover was um, just this kind of silhouetted Santa Claus standing there with a, an axe. Yeah. And, uh, and I didn't take it as, oh, that's a psycho dressed up as Santa Claus. I thought that Santa Claus gone crazy. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. That film... Um, <laughs> Because of reactions like you, uh, yours, that film got a uh, huge backlash in the States when it came out. Yeah, I yeah a lot imagine. of concerned parents. You know? <laughs> uh, look, I'm Simon, and hey, Lincoln, if you're listening, Die Hard really is my favorite Christmas movie. Honestly, it really is. Excellent. Um, I'm just saying that because we both entered a competition. He entered it first online to win tickets to see a movie, and it's uh, all you had to do was put your favorite Christmas movie down, and he put Die Hard, so I went, yeah, Die Hard. <laughs> I won, he didn't. Oh, man. Yes, yeah, so I feel bad, but only a little bit because it was free ticket. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So what have you been watching? All right, I watched a hyper low budget, lovely that eighty slasher them with an extraterrestrial twist that reminded me of Spoiler Alert Five: The Hidden. Uh, it was called Almost Human. It's kind of a welcome blood soaked spend of seventy two minutes. It was billed as eighty minutes, and I, and I kind of got to the end and thought oh, seventy two minutes. It had the slowest end credit crawl, eh? like <laughs> fully eight minutes of credits. It's glacially paced because not many people worked on it. And mostly they were the same person, you know? Yeah. Um, Joe Bigos, who was like the, the writer, director, producer, and the camera operator. Mm-hmm. And um, the editor was also one of the actors. Yeah. Um, so maybe he just edited a bit too tightly. But because <laughs> apparently uh, the eight minutes of credits, I had to get it into festivals because it had to be 80 minutes long. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but no, it was really fun. It really reminded me of what I liked about the, the better slash movies in the 80s. And his next one, which I haven't seen, is called The Mind's Eye. And I watched the trailer and that's... Just people's psychic powers exploding brains. So nice. it's like that's as lovely as Cronenberg. Wow. So got to see that next. Okay. Um, yeah. I caught up with Unfriended, a film that presents all its events in real time and all on the screen of a laptop. So we watched Skype conversations unfold, Facebook being updated, private messaging happening, and Google searches being undertaken between a group of teens who become the victims of some sort of cyber killer. Mm-hmm. It works surprisingly well. I was impressed by how accurate the representation of the online experience was, except for the speed. Mm-hmm. You know, I would love a connection as fast as the characters in this movie have, <laughs> and you know it's a couple of years old as well. So man, they had a good connection. <laughs> um, some of the deaths are a bit silly, and the rules of the world are really vague and, and, and sometimes confusing. But the experiment mostly worked. I found okay. Yeah, it was really interesting because I heard of this, but I never watched it because I was like, I don't really want to watch uh, you know an hour and a half of someone typing. It works better than you think, and what's really interesting is you get to see characters. Think about things and then change your mind because I'll start typing and then delete, delete. And, and I, that, that mechanism worked quite nicely. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I was genuinely surprised by, like, when they're on Facebook, it looks exactly like Facebook. When they're on Skype, it looks exactly like Skype. And I was thinking, wow, how did they get that? How do they? Yeah. Because one of my bugbears when I'm watching movies, computer screens that look like nothing I've ever encountered before, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That beep all the time and seem extra smooth, you know? Yeah. Whereas this was like, yeah, that's the experience. That, yeah. That, that's it. With more kills, obviously. <laughs> uh, I saw South Korea's take on the zombie film, uh, Train to Busan, which is a, this pulse-pounding disaster film wrapped in horror movie dressing. 
It plays like the Poseidon Adventure with the added difficulty of flesh-eating monsters at every turn. So many great set pieces. Uh, passengers crawling over luggage racks as zombies lurk below. Survivors desperately jammed up against the door, trying to hold back the slathering horde. And a furious dash for a runaway, runaway train as zombies lope after our heroes. It's just really well-executed mayhem. Mm-hmm. And it really did remind me of, you know, even though it's a zombie film, it reminded me more of a disaster film in that you had these characters, you know, different archetypes. Yeah. And, like, there was one, like, a uh, businessman who was just the worst. He was the guy who goes, ah, oh, everything, it's okay, the, the coast is clear, and he pushes someone into in front oh, of zombies, yeah. and, you know, that guy. Yeah, so here he's like Burke and Aliens. Kind of totally, <laughs> just, you just want him to die, yeah. you know? It's a bad call, Ripley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's that, and there's young lovers, and, you know, the pregnant yeah. woman, and, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's got all those tropes, but just, ah, oh, such furious energy, you know? Yeah. Sorry, what was that called again? Train to Basan. Train to Basan. Train to Basan. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I also saw a real strange one. This Directed by Ted Post. Uh, in the same year he named he, he helmed Magnum Force, mm-hmm. he directed a film called The Baby, easily the strangest film I watched this month. Um, it's about a dysfunctional, otherwise all-female family who keep their only boy dressed and treated as a baby, even though it's like he's a fully-grown adult. Right. Um, this, and, and, and what's really weird is he's dubbed by a baby, clearly dubbed by baby <laughs> sounds. You know? uh, there's also this social worker who's desperate to prove that baby is a normal man who has been forced to act like a baby rather than... Uh, but she has some pretty weird motivations herself, you know? Yeah. And uh, throwing cattle prods, horny babysitters, and some veiled sexual shenanigans that might or might not be going on. And you have one of the weirdest cult films I think I've seen come out of the 70s, which is saying something. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. What, a, what a fertile ground. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just... It's, this could be a good double team with um, Burial Ground then. Yeah, it really could. It's in that <laughs> it doesn't actually show you a lot. It more hints at things, mm-hmm. which is because I'm watching him thinking, this feels like a TV, like a made-for-TV movie, like mm-hmm. a, almost like the most perverse Hallmark movie you've ever seen, you know? <laughs> um, but just the territory it's crossing into is so wrong. <laughs> so that, 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 was, that was good fun. And um, lastly, The Sweetest Thing from 2002. Cameron Diaz, Christina Applegate, and Selma Blair hurl themselves at a cascade of sexually debasing situations with wide grins and unflagging manic energy. Like the most enthusiastically suicidal lemmings ever, careening happily off a cliff of semi-pornographic shame. Uh, So that's the sweetest thing, which, spoiler alert, isn't sweet. Definitely a thing, though quite an unpleasant thing as it turns out. I was trying to catch that lightning in the bottle. Yeah. Something about Mary vibe, but yeah. it just comes. Everything doesn't work. Right down to Thomas Jane's frosted tips <laughs> on, a, on his hair a, as the uh, love interest, I mm. guess. So this is obviously the time when Thomas Jane was hot. Yeah, yeah. He, I, ne- I guess he was, but I never thought he was hot in a romantic lead way. Yeah. You know, my association with Thomas Jane is largely, you know, the Punisher. Yeah. No, that's uh, what I mean. I don't mean hot as attractive. I mean hot as in. <laughs> oh, as, <laughs> as in. <laughs> Yeah, but that's Thomas Jane's heart. No, no, I don't mean it's it. Not a bad looking man, he's apart from the frosted man. hair. Yeah, but <laughs> no, even even as I know what you mean, as in yeah. like bankable. But I still yeah. never saw him as a romantic lead. I never saw him as that way. No, that's right. Well, he kind of came from that character stuff because I remember people going, "Oh, that's a dude in Boogie Nights," and I'm like, "Right, what? right." I, I didn't even. I, I mean, he was striking actor, but he's just kind of almost chameleon like. Yeah, Bo- Boogie Nights, and then suddenly it's like, oh, now he's like a leading man. I'm like, really? Yeah, I guess he could have been too if things had gone better for mm. him, maybe. Like, I could see he could be. Um, the Punisher wasn't an action film to be, make him a leading man, yeah. and this isn't a romantic film to make him a leading man, though. Yeah. Even though he's hot. Even though he's quite 
Uh, so what about you? What have you been watching? Uh, well, I saw Trumbo. Uh, killer dialogue and fun performances from Brian Cranston and Louis C.K., who both get to deliver scathing Woody Allen-esque retorts to communist witch hunters. Uh, Helen Mirren is also terrific as the vilified Hedda Hopper in this film. She really is the bad person in this. You know, it's kind of hinted at in Hail Caesar. They go full. She's, oh, cool, she's the cool, cool. Here. Uh, the film simplifies the struggle and really kind of canonizes the blacklisted writers. It lacks the light and shade of the unusual times, but it's definitely entertaining and worth watching for uh, John Goodman provoked by an anti-communist into unleashing his dormant Walter from Big Lebowski as he takes a baseball bat to his own office in the most threatening display of self-deprecation you're likely to laugh at. His scene is a real standout. He's only in like wow. one or two scenes, but his, his final one's brilliant. Oh, you make me want to see this because I do love myself some Hollywood history as well. Yeah, yeah, you will you will enjoy it. It's very, very entertaining. Um, we've seen this, you know, it's hinted at in Hail Caesar, obviously, um, but uh, it, it's, it's entertaining. It's got some great dialogue in it. Um, it's called Death Trap. Sidney LeMay's uh, 1982 film has some nice plot twists and a fun performance from Christopher Reeve, really reminding us, you know, kind of how good he was back then. Uh, the, the plot mechanics, particularly in the second half, are quite entertaining, but it feels like a chore to wade through the first acts. Repetitive elements, especially like really awkward pairing of Michael Caine yelling uh, and Diane Cannon screeching. Uh, it's really tough to get through that, but um, it's got some nice plot mechanics, but um, some of the acting is just really hard to get through. <laughs> I saw Man Up. Uh, a simple rom-com with Simon Pegg playing Simon Pegg. Um, but the film ha- has its moments, and every single one of them belong to its lead, Lake Bell, uh, and a charming and authentic performance. Uh, you've seen the story a million times. Sure. Uh, you might not have seen Lake Bell delivering it, and that reason alone could be worth your time. I've got a lot of time for Lake Bell. Yeah, and she's great in this. I think she's an American actress, and she does an English accent, and she completely right. nails it. The Eagle Huntress... Uh, which is a bit of a one-dimensional documentary that feels so staged, you won't be surprised to find out at all that much of it was staged or at least recreated. Uh, The film has some great visuals captured by drone, uh, quite obviously, and an eminently likable cherubic 13-year-old girl who is learning to capture and train strong eagles in the mountains of Mongolia in order to hunt foxes. The film goes to pains to highlight that the practice is a male-dominated one, but the attitudes don't appear as monolithic as the film would like you to believe. Uh, the doco is solidly constructed, except for a distracting voiceover provided by, I think, someone who's an executive producer, Daisy Ridley from The Force Awakens. Yeah. And her voiceover just reeks of not trusting an audience to fill in the blanks, and it also makes you feel like you're watching the documentary on TV. Like, every time she came on... I was like, oh, I feel like I'm watching this on, you know, on Nat Geo or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the actual subject matter is interesting, but the manipulation is quite obvious. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah, yeah. It's got some great scenes in there, some great shots, and very. She's very interesting. The main character. Uh, they call me Jig Robot. This year's surprise hit in Italy about a petty thief falling into chemical waste who is transformed into a super strong vigilante. Uh, it's like Toxic Avenger meets uh, like a manga film with some fun sequences done like quite slyly on the cheap. You can go, I can see you doing this on the cheap, but they're quite effective. Um, And it has quite a standout gangster villain. Narratively, the film doesn't do anything particularly new. Uh, The characters are unusual, although it does kind of have a disturbing, infantilized female lead. Uh, But it was a critical darling and commercial hit in its homeland, so sequels with a bigger budget could be on the way. It'll be interesting interesting to see what they do if they get a bigger budget. Um, 
and continuing in my long pursuit of watching every entry into the canon of early 90s sexy psycho thrillers, I saw 1992's Unlawful Entry. You're a brave man. (laughs) About a married couple who become the obsession of an unhinged cop. Unfortunately, it's frustratingly decent. Uh, mainly due to casting uh, with Madeline Stowe. Oh, whatever happened to her? Oh, she was great, you know. Speaking, speaking of people who were bankable, yeah. Um, yeah, around this time. Uh, and a surprisingly restrained pairing of Kurt Russell and Ray Liotta uh, until the last act when they both step into, you know, scenery chewing quite significantly. Um, but Liotta's police partner is played by the guy who played TC in Magnum P.I., Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's in there. I was like, oh, I haven't seen him since Magnum P.I. I I don't know if I've ever seen anything else he's done. Uh, Speaking of uh, 1992, I saw Livewire. Pre-Bond, Pierce Brosnan plays an on-the-edge explosive expert on the trail of assassins. This film is bonkers. Uh, Cheaply made with Brosnan laying bare all the issues I have with his later Bond films, which is he knows he's in a silly film but can't resist putting in teary drama. I mean, he's in a film about people who spontaneously combust due to unknowingly drinking liquid dynamite fed to them by dead-eyed psycho Ben Cross, who's dressed like Will Ferrell in like, the Night at the Roxbury skit from SNL. And yet, I, I, I sense you're making fun of this film, but it's <laughs> sounding amazing. Yeah. But yet Brosnan has flashbacks to the drowning of his child that he feels responsible for. So all this insanity is happening around him, and he's kind of like, yeah, but I've, I've got this, you know, my character's really got to go through his arc. It's like... Dude, you know, it, it isn't quite so bad. It's good, but it's damn close. And mainly because when people, and mainly when people turn into like a human bomb, like that transformation is just like real good B grade fun. It's like bleeding from the eyes and everything. Uh, and um, oh, it's it's it is you, quite funny. You are actually totally selling me on this one. <laughs> you should hunt it out, live wire. Live wire. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I probably won't end up seeing Trumbo, but I'll end up seeing Livewire. <laughs> okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming in town. Santa! Oh, my God! So, Simon, what's the news? Well, the Hollywood Reporters had a wee look back at 2016 and ranked the year in film. Not by quality or box office, but by Bechdel. Yes, the famous test of a film's treatment of women found that only half of this year's top 25 blockbusters scored a pass, uh, which means they had... Two more female characters, they both had names, and they engaged in conversations about something other than the men in the film, which seems like a low kind of hurdle, but yeah. nonetheless, too high for many films, it seems. Unsurprising passes went to Ghostbusters and Bad Moms. Mm-hmm. Uh, more surprising to me was Suicide Squad and Captain America Civil War, which I guess got there by stint of large ensemble casts, which did allow women to interact. Yeah. Uh, the least shocking was the fact that films like Deadpool, Jason Bourne, and the film we both called on its treatment of women last month, Doctor Strange, all failed pretty badly. Yeah, I'm not surprised Doctor Strange. <laughs> yeah, Terrible. exactly. Uh, managing just one of the criteria required to pass the test, which I think in uh, Doctor Strange, there were two women. Right. Uh, total failures, films that couldn't score a solitary one on the Bechdel test, were The Magnificent Seven <laughs> and The Legend of Tarzan. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Which I can see as well. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, did you know there is a new Robin Hood film coming out? I think we may have talked about it. And naturally, it's called Robin Hood Origins. Uh, apparently, they've been casting it for over a year. Uh, this time last year, Jamie Foxx was cast as Little John. And this time... Jamie Foxx? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, keep going. And this time this year, Ben Mendelsohn 
uh, fresh from Rogue One and Bloodline Acclaim, has been cast as the Sheriff of Nottingham to join Kingsman's Heron Egerton as the baby-faced outlaw. I hate this. <laughs> I mean, you know that. I hate this. This is my favorite story yeah. that I always want to see well told. Yeah. You know, I love the Robin Hood story. I love it to bits. Yeah. Um, Taron Egerton is Robin Hood. I don't, I don't see. Yeah. Um, Jamie Foxx, you say, it's a little job. Yeah. I've got some issues around that. Yeah. Yeah, clearly. And then, and then I think there's uh, Jamie Dornan, you know, the guy from um, Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's Will Scarlet. Yeah, I don't mind that. Yeah. Um, that could work. Yeah. Uh, and Ben Mendelsohn, that will work. Yeah. I have no doubt about that working. Yeah. He's fantastic. No word on uh, who's much. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All holding out for that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, you know, but just the, the, the Origins has come back. So I'm really hoping that Species gets a reboot sequel so it can be called Origin of the Species. Oh. You know, and then drawing everyone thinking it's about like Charles Darwin or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's good. I like it. <laughs> Look, last month I talked about the passing of actress Catherine Adams at the very respectable age of 96. So if Catherine Adams gets a eulogy in this podcast, there's no way I can ignore the passing of Lupita Tovar. Tovar was a Spanish actress who started out her career during the dying days of silent cinema, a time when an accent was no hindrance to getting work. But when sound kicked in, she was largely reduced to Spanish films in roles as Native Girl and Cabaret Girl. Mm. Still, she starred in at least one famous film that I have seen, the 1931 Dracula. The practice of dubbing was still in its infancy, so while Bella Lugosi was filming Hollywood's first ever talking horror film by day, Tovar and a Spanish cast were creeping onto the same set at night to shoot their own version uh, in Spanish. The Spanish version is often described as the superior Dracula, and it's definitely the better directed and the more earthly essential, uh, thanks in part to Peter Tovar's performance. Tovar's career ended in the 50s, but her daughter, Susan Kona, followed her into acting, being nominated for an Oscar for Imitation of Life. Mm-hmm. And her grandsons, Paul and Chris Weitz, are the writer-director team behind About a Boy. Oh, wow. Yeah. But the really amazing part of this pretty great life story is that Lapita was 106 years old at the time of her passing. Oh, that's month. great. Yeah, 106. And that truly is an epic achievement. To have started a career in silent film, in silent cinema, starred in a landmark horror movie, appeared in your country's first ever sound film, and to have lived for over 100 years. Bravo, Lupita Tova. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. What a great story. Yeah, it is a really good story. I, yeah. I love those sort of stories. Um, but, you know, just what a, a pedigree as well, you know, that yeah. she, she had a daughter and, and grandchildren that followed her career yeah. to an extent, you know. I remember hearing about this, Dra- you may have even told me about the Dracula. Yeah, yeah, Spanish Dracula. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a funny film. It's it's longer, even though when you're watching it, you're aware you're watching many of the same scenes shot exactly the same way. Yeah, you know, but yet somehow the scenes play a little longer, and they work better for it. Mm-hmm. It's got a much better pace. Um, it's got a, a much better feel. It just doesn't have Bella Lugosi, unfortunately. Right, and it actually makes a big difference. Well, after a striking teaser trailer, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk has just had its full trailer released. Um, this should do particularly well at the English box office, I'm thinking, I mean, considering it's Christopher Nolan, but also that, you know, this World War II event's legendary status in the psyche of that island nation. Uh, there's a good cast with Nolan favourites Tom Hardy and Killian Murphy, joined by Kenneth Branagh and recent Oscar winner Mark Rylance, who delivers the inspiring line, there's no hiding from the sun, in the most chilling way possible. Yeah. I really love the way that he delivered that. That genuinely, like, stood out to me when I saw the trailer. Um, but what also caught my attention was 
where I found this was on the enemy website. Right. And <laughs> their way to promote the film and obviously get their readers yeah. interested was by using the headline, watch Harry Styles drowning in Dunkirk trailer. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. And like, yeah. if you actually watch it, it's not like, it's, it's, it's literally about, you know, a second, a yep. shot of him like drowning. But they had a still frame of him going, wow, you know, watch, watch One Direction yeah. drown. Yeah. Man, that's brutal. I don't understand the hate at all. No, no, but I, I don't know whether it was intentional or whether they were actually, you know, because the, the actual subject, the, the content of it yeah. is just all about the film and praising it and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, but instead, it's, it's almost like Onion-esque headline. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sweetie, that is so great. Mommy's so proud of you. Hey, could you put your daddy back on the phone for a second? Here you let your stripper girlfriend put my children on her motorcycle one more time. I will gone girl you so hard. And now we're on to No Comps. Uh, this is the part of the podcast where we review a latest release and at the cinema. And uh, this one was obviously seasonally themed, wasn't it? Uh, and it's Office Christmas Party. Directed by Josh Gordon and Will Speck, starring Jason Bateman, Jennifer Aniston, TJ Miller, Olivia Munn, and Courtney B. Vance. CEO from Hell, Carol Vanstone, is in Chicago to close the local branch of tech company Xenotech, run by her hard-partying brother Clay, a man compared unfavorably to a drunk baby at one point. Clay, with his trusty lieutenant Josh and tech genius Tracy, had a plan to save the company by throwing the mother of all Christmas parties in an attempt to impress an important client. Naturally, everything goes horribly, horribly wrong. If you, I wrote that and I'm just thinking as I read it, I don't know how you get compared favorably with a drunk baby. It's like, <laughs> well, he's, he's better than a drunk baby. Yeah, it still doesn't sound great. Hi, this is Casting Central here. Okay, give me a character list and we'll match them up. Okay, need an everyman? We've got Jason Bateman, sorted. Oh, he's required to trade banter with a deadpan, caustic tongue, socially awkward co-worker? Oh, look, we could go Aubrey Plaza, but she's a bit young even for Bateman, so instead, here's Olivia Munn. Need a no-nonsense bitch? Well, that's almost exclusively Jennifer Aniston's career over the last five mm-hmm. years. Dreamer man-child? TJ Miller doesn't even need to act. Rob Corddry will deliver you the most Rob Corddry performance imaginable, and we'll get Kate McKinnon to avoid resembling an actual human being, instead providing you with a performance like a prototype android programmed to the setting wacky. Yeah, people asked me after I'd seen it, hey, how was Kate McKinnon? Uh, so obviously she's got a fan base, but look, I don't really have an answer. She's playing a broad stock character to prove to reveal she has a wild side. Her defining characteristics her, are her flatulence and her gaudy Christmas sweater. How am I supposed to judge this, you know? Was it funny on paper? I don't know. Uh, did it get laughs on set, maybe? Because it dies on screen for me. Um, only T.J. T. Miller gave me any sort of laughs, I think, yeah. Yeah. And I pretty much hated everyone in this film, mm. I've got to say. Hated them. And none of them deserve the happy ending Christmas, uh, Office Christmas Party casually rewards them with. Uh, Bateman and Munn, maybe, you know, they seem smart. Though I never believe Munn is a computer genius for a second. Uh, and they were at least actively acting in the interest of the company. And I'm tempted to include Anderson's character here as well, because uh, she had the now to recognize the difference between good workers and playing terrible employees, which is pretty much everyone in this film. But she was she set up as just such an evil witch, you know, until the late switch into trying to eke out sympathy for her. That it's hard to feel for her, but the rest of them absolutely deserve to drown in their old, own bacchanal swill, <laughs> victims of their own vice and all-round stupidity. Uh, this company was clearly a shambles, run by a moron with more money than sense, who achieved his position through sheer nepotism. 
Uh, if the global financial crisis has taught us anything, it's that people like this should be vilified, not turned into supposedly loved, lovable comic characters. You mm. know? Uh, by the way, all of which wouldn't be a problem for me if this film was funny. Yeah, exactly. What's the shame is, for the most part, the people I mentioned are actually quite gifted like comedians. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I've seen them all in far superior stuff where they are very good. Um, but Bateman's character like, has no obstacles to overcome, no funny lines, and he's almost the dictionary definition of a straight man. Um, T.J. Miller is, as you said, probably the most successful of the characters here, mainly because he's like kind of a stoner Will Ferrell. Yeah. And, you know, all stupid ideas and good heart. His random observations are off the wall enough to raise a chuckle. Uh, but it's just a real lack of stakes in the film. And it's just stuffed with storylines that are never resolved, characters we never care about. And this for a comedy, the set pieces are forgettable. Aside from Courtney B. Vance falling from a great height and face planting with horror film like body trauma, uh, there's like virtually no joke or scene that stands out to me. When I came out of that, I was going, oh, I don't remember any comedic set piece. I don't remember mm-hmm. anything. Um, it's it's really anonymous kind of film. And, and that's probably its cardinal sin. What will speak volumes is the biggest laugh I got from this film was Jennifer Aniston saying fuck you to a child. Right. Like yeah. That was genuinely, yeah. I genuinely laughed out loud. I didn't expect that. And I genuinely laughed out loud. And that's such a throwaway. And as we found out later, that's all just improv you know, that, that whole thing. Yeah. And, and I defy you to watch the <laughs> blooper reel outtake at the end with improv stuff in there and be able to distinguish that from the actual script. You yep. see, it, it, I'm like, oh, I wouldn't have even noticed unless the yep. credit's running on the side. Yeah, look, you use the word random, and I think, um, you know, it's going for a sort of shock comedy, and I think there's value in shock comedy, comedy that wants to, like, slam you with taboo-breaking moments. But Office Christmas Party doesn't really rise to that level. It, it peaks at kind of a surprise comedy, which is the only weapon in its arsenal. It's mm. really the only thing it's doing. Every joke is of the prudish character acts unexpectedly nasty or pimp turns out to be sweet-talking young lady type. And surprise jokes can kind of work sometimes in the same way that horror movies that are all jump scares will get you once in a while, mm. you know. Uh, but it's repetitive and really draining to sit through. There are no finely honed one-liners, as you say, um, cleverly crafted sight gags or skill bits of physical humour. Just fart gags and the word bitch thrown around so ceaselessly and carelessly. Mm. I don't think I've ever heard a film that had the word bitch in so often. You yeah. know, people like saying, you're my bitch and these are my bitches. It's supposed to be all like, oh, that's shocking and funny. Yeah. It's not. It's just boring. you know. And like you say, it reeks of actors improving lines to see if they stick. And one of the few gags that did get a laugh out of me was um, – we, uh, was when Clay admitted to having studied Canadian television theory, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, and it's a throwaway moment. And But like you say, in the outtakes at the end, he, he went through a lot of different gags to get to that one. Yeah, that's right. You know? um, and as a surprise, it's not even really successful. The party seldom struck me as innovatively unhinged. You know, no. uh, Sure, they went one step further with photocopying your privates, but apart from the gloriously surreal shot of Christ riding a horse in slow motion, the proceedings, which I did enjoy. Mm. Everything else felt like it had been done before. Yeah. And, it, you know, they, they do this thing, and it doesn't matter how many times that you do it, where there's an energetic song hits and someone starts walking in slow motion, and you go, oh, yeah, something big's about to happen. But nothing does. No. You know, that doesn't lead to anything. You know, it's trying really hard to hit the sweet spot of the first Hangover film without capturing that film's novelty. Yeah. You know? And the Hangover film also understood that you had to make your protagonist suffer quite a bit. Uh, for the laughs and office Christmas party thinks fun is funny, yeah, which it isn't. You know, yeah. 
the absurdity that the party dissolves into is almost a background afterthought. The Sodom and Gomorrah levels of debauchery is relegated to a montage. And the final act sees all five central characters abandon the Christmas party setting. I mean, this should have been like a comedic diehard. That's what this should have been. You know, stuck, you know, like with our tame office workers descending into madness until like only one or two survive to wade their way out of the place. Instead, it's all kind of pat simplicity ending with a whimper outside a hospital making jokes about drinking on medication. Like, I'll give you an example of the failure of the script. Olivia Mon and Jason Bateman, I, I don't know their character names, and neither do you, and neither does anyone who watched the film, but Mon and Bateman are on the rooftop, and they get locked out, and they're dressed inappropriately for standing on a rooftop at night, let alone one in the Chicago winter evening when it's snowing. And they're barely shivering. And how do they escape the situation? The door opens and a co-worker urinates saying something I don't remember and they walk inside. Like th- yeah. That's their problem for two seconds. They're not even threatened by it and then it's resolved immediately, yeah, that, ne- neither dramatically or comedically satisfying. That's, that scene existed for them to have a heart-to-heart about how they didn't get together because she was angry with them. Yeah. Which turned into uh, a kiss yeah. so quickly. Yeah. That went that, from, you yeah. know, uh, that... That situation was resolved so painlessly. Exactly. And that's my point. Like, okay, I see the plot mechanics of why you're doing this. So why can't you do this either dramatically or comedically or ideally both? And and the other thing I found annoying about it was that all of the characters were eccentric and wacky and off the wall and funny one-liners and weird from the beginning. Kate McKinnon's character. I mean, if someone genuinely walked around your office and talked like that and farted in meetings and wore like this, you know, crazy Jersey and yeah. was telling people off. She would be a cult figure in your office. And instead we're supposed to think, Oh, she's a bit bland. She's a bit ordinary. No, she's one of the most interesting kind of characters you could possibly have. Yeah. And then she goes off the wall. Really? Didn't see that coming at all. And I don't mean from a plot point of view. I mean, from a character point of view, you know that from the beginning. Yeah. Look, you d- talked about the, uh, the car ch- chase scene, I think the hospital mm-hmm. scene. <sighs> yeah. This felt, Really tired that 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 structure, you know, party shenanigans I can handle. That is, after all, the reason for this film's existence. Yeah. But I need another fish out of water, well-heeled white folk infiltrating a gangster's hideout and trying to act all street. As much as I needed that flatly filmed comic car chase that followed it, mm. and, and of course that all leads to a race across town for Bateman and Munn to find the tech solution to getting the internet back onto the city and save the company at the same time. And you won't care for any of this, I imagine, because I know I didn't. But you're a better person than me if you can suspend your disbelief long enough to buy Olivia Munn's eureka moment as she figures out a way to jury-freak internet for an entire city. Yeah. Or even much less care about that happening, I imagine. I mean, I saw Suicide Squad this month, and there was nothing in that film that strained credibility as much as watching Munn turn a whole city into a Wi-Fi hotspot based on uh, a moment of inspiration. Yeah. I, I think I think ultimately it's that by that point you don't care. By that point I'm like, is this actually the point oh, of this film? Man, by the time they said we've got to get back to, I was like, oh, just make this thing stop. Yeah, just make it stop. Yeah, and it doesn't know how to end. That's why I say at the end of it where they're like bantering about you know partying or medication with the doctor, it just goes on for ages, and you're just like you don't know how to finish this film. You barely knew how to start it. Look, Simon said last month about reading. Doctor Strange critical reviews after he had written his review and being surprised to find it was getting good reviews that, you know, kind of generally the critics were on the other side of what you thought. I had a very similar experience this month. I was shocked to find it being cut so much slack. 
Right. I, I, I mean, virtually every review I read after writing my review read along the lines of, basically, it's formulaic, but it has a couple of good laughs. Not enough to sustain it, but you'll, you know, you'll get a few chuckles out of it. No, it does not. It also has no satirical value, and it doesn't assemble a cast of painfully recognisable corporate archetypes in the way like Office Space or TV's The Office does. Instead, all the peripheral characters are wacky, off-the-wall, and eccentric from the beginning, as I was saying, rather than being revealed through the course of the film. Mm. And I just got to the... When I did the same thing, I'll, I'll have see what everyone says. Surely some people are hacking into this. And basically, you know, it's got about 50%. You know, people, yeah. And I reckon it should be way further down than that. Way further. Look, you mentioned it too, but I really wanted Office Christmas Party to turn to satire. Yeah. No, I wanted to look at it as excess, as depravity, not good times, you know. And I thought there may be a hint of that. There's this lovely shot of the Xenotech building from outside. It's uh, end of the world party in full swing while a floor blower cleaner scrub toilets. Yeah. You know, and I thought, you know, that whole making sure Rome was still clean while Nero set it afire on the next level. I really like that, but that's not the story this film's telling. No. Uh, it's the usual dysfunctional screw-ups getting it done through naive decency, apparently, um, and the power of liquor and lots of it. Yeah. And I would have loved it if it had been a satire. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, all the other characters, uh, all the characters are kind of painfully self-aware of, of themselves from the beginning. You know what I mean? And th- that's that's just boring. You know, like that's, there's, there's, there's nothing, there's no narrative drive to this. There's, there's, there's no real upping of stakes other than stupid decisions that people are making in and of themselves. You know, like TJ Miller decides, well, I'm going to, Try and drive a car over a bridge. You yeah. Know, well, okay. That's your big climax. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a bit. Look, it's the sort of film that makes me despair. An unfunny, wasteful exercise in tired comedy tropes that is itself a celebration of empty headed excess. Mm. You know, it cost $45 million to make this vapid monstrosity. And I don't usually worry about budgets, but I sort of had to know. And by comparison, the excellent thriller Don't Breathe came in at $10 million. My favourite fright from the year, The Witch, cost $3 million. And Almost Human came in at $50,000. So instead of having to suffer through Office Christmas Party, we could have had four and a half Don't Breathe, 15 The Witches, and something like 900 Almost Humans, (laughs) which frankly no one probably needs. But you get the point, you know? Yeah. This is an awful lot of money to spend on a film that no one needs to see. Yeah. Exactly. And I I think even for this kind of movie – this style of movie, it's poor. And yep. that, that's the most damning thing about it is not so much. Uh, I'm all up for a good time. I'm all up for surprising insanity, you know, and I could have even been, oh, it's 50% forgiving, but it's not. It doesn't have the doesn't have a, the jokes. It doesn't have the set pieces. It doesn't have the premise. Yeah. It doesn't have the action. And it doesn't have the characters. And shockingly, it has the actors. It doesn't have the characters. And now we're on to our annual Spoiler Alert Awards. Uh, much like the Academy Awards, but obviously we're a bit earlier, and this is a lot more prestigious. Um, we give away our uh, Glittering Awards, Simon. Yep. And um, so they're, they're a little bit um, unusual, our awards. So, Simon, what's your first category? I mentioned it last month, but boy, are we in a renaissance period for art house horror. Uh, last year I got treated to the Bubba Dook, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and it follows. This year, I get The Witch, Evolution, Spring, and more recently, the very grim black-and-white beastie, The Eyes of My Mother. All fine films, despite Brett Easton Ellis's curmudgeonly objection to this trend. 
Uh, and I'm not sure how this trend even began. Is it simply the age-old strategy of first-time filmmakers to lean into exploitation being exploited itself by directors with an artistic bent? Or is there something more to this? Either way, I can take as many fresh approaches to horror as that they can deliver me. So my word for the 2016 trend I'm loving the most, art house horror. Excellent. Keep going. Yeah, I've got to watch a lot of that. I've only, I think out of those ones you mentioned, I've only seen uh, Witch. Right, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But um, Brett Easton Ellis, yeah. yeah. He, he tweeted out, indie art house horror is becoming my least favorite new genre. And he mentions Goodnight Mummy, which I haven't seen, The Babadook, It Follows, and The Witch, all the last three I have seen, and they're all really good. Yeah. Then what's wrong with you, Alice? Yeah. Seriously, what? what, what, what? <laughs> well, aside well, from I American Psycho. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather go back to the 80s and just be getting, you know, Nightmare in Elm Street Part 7, yeah. you know, and endless slasher films? I mean, this yeah. is a great trend to be having. Yeah. He probably and, would like to go back to the 80s and have those. He was probably doing cocaine off the uh prob- the Probably seemed VHS good at the covers. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those yeah. big clamshell covers. Yeah. Perfect for slicing, eh? Yeah. I've got to, I've got to return some videos. <laughs> <laughs> the Hello Controversy My Old Friend Award goes to Paul Verhoeven for L. Much like when George Foreman came out of retirement after a long time away and slugged his way to the championship with almost effortless ease, Paul Verhoeven has been sitting ringside for two decades, refusing to exploit his almost unmatched ability to generate controversy, except for Lars von Trier, obviously. And then this year, he delivers a knockout masterclass in audience baiting, delivering a beating and raping that the viewer may struggle to survive, but his lead character passes through with a disturbing and ultimately fascinating composure. The film hinges on Isabella Huppert's expert performance, and like all Verhoeven's work, it is ultimately the blackest of comedies. What it's trying to say is anybody's guess, but Verhoeven and Huppert conspire to give us a character who refuses to be a victim, and in fact, as the audience discovers, is quite morally compromised and even unlikable. Uh, This is a film that is ridiculous, brutal, offensive, silly, surprising, funny, odd, and controversial. And that sounds like I just summed up the director's career. Yeah, you pretty much did. (laughs) Yeah, look, I've got to see this. Yeah. Uh, This is an interesting one. I've seen it actually pop up on a few lists of uh, best of the year. I was like... Wow. You're braver than me. I would not have put it up there. It's definitely uh, it sticks in the mind. I'll give you that. And Isabella Harper is everything in that film. Without her, I'd, you know, let's yeah. just say Elizabeth Berkeley might not have been able to sell it as well. Yeah. <laughs> my scene of the year contains my favorite performance of the year. Though just for that one scene, if you follow my drift, it's the possession of Caleb from Robert Eggers' The Witch. Uh, Anna Taylor-Joy got most of the acting accolades and love for her performance in this fine horror flick, but young Harvey Scrimshaw, the sort of name destined to get you cast in a film called The Witch, has one jaw-dropping scene. Brought back from the woods, almost comatose, he comes to, he comes to long enough to utter a chilling prayer, pious but also reveling in a kind of haunted sexual ecstasy. It's an uncommonly complex and eerie scene demanding the sort of acting chops a 14-year-old boy probably shouldn't possess. Mm. Um, the Witch is full of great scenes, but for me, this one topped the lot. Fantastic scene. Yeah, it, it really, really stood out. His performance in it. Just, yeah. It's something special, right? Yeah, it is. And it's a real um, centerpiece of that film. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, that's when everything starts turning, really. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. yet it's odd when you, um, it's seldom highlighted in reviews that I've read. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk a lot about Anna, Anna Taylor Joy, but I really thought his moment there was amazing to watch. Mm. The Upholding Traditional Values Award goes to The Jungle Book. Maybe it was a paucity of expectations, but one film that surprised me this year was The Jungle Book. 
Uh, I was struck by its straightforward approach. Uh, in a time when children's films cram in pop culture references and meta commentary, Jungle Book tells an engaging story with considerable confidence in its narrative content and age-old themes. It doesn't pander to bored parents or easily distracted kids. Uh, nowhere is this more apparent than in its presentation of Shia Khan. He is a real and intense antagonist, and the film's all the stronger for it. And awesomely voiced by Idris Elba. Oh, cool. I've got to see this then. Yeah, yeah. I was just... It's unusual. I was just thinking how many kids' films are like this these days. Something that is essentially a kids' film. And, and for trailer of the year, I had two favourite trailers this year. One for a very good film and one for a pretty terrible film. Uh, the full throttle thriller, Don't Breathe, came onto my radar thanks to a dynamite red band trailer that's all twitchy edits, gorgeous sound design, and the repeated use of the phrase, pretty fucked up. Uh, the film more than followed through on the uneasy, unsettling violence and danger the trailer promised. On the other hand, the first trailer for The Suicide Squad promised loads of irreverent fun and witty action, uh, which the film did not deliver on at all, as it turned out. It was a genius decision to set the trailer to Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, punctuating gunshots with Freddie Mercury's vocal stabs and pausing the whole rising build-up for Jai Courtney to just crack open a tinny. It's marvellously edited and offers up all the fun that the film buried with a dull villain, a forgettable plot and a pure mountain of exposition. So save yourself the effort and the time and just watch your trailer again. <laughs> Don't watch the film. I will do. The overreaction award goes to Ghostbusters. What else could it be? I mean, really, people, what was all the fuss about? Ghostbusters was likable, solid fun with a talented cast. Its biggest crime was essentially being an actual remake in terms of story. So it wasn't too much too surprising. Now, you may not think it was great. Mm, I get that. But I think you'd have to be pretty cynically mean-spirited to say it was bad, embarrassing, or hurtful. Uh, because if that's your issue, then what you should be worried about isn't all female remakes of Ghostbusters, but the damage that original films like Batman vs. Superman and Suicide Squad are doing to superhero movies. I mean, that is damning an entire subgenre to critical annihilation at the moment. Yeah, I can't argue with that. And cannot argue with that. So, from finely crafted trailers to a mawkish slice of white gill that gracefully smashes the blind side into the magical negro, negro trope with mind-boggling results. The trailer for Same Kind of Different as Me is the worst trailer I saw this year. Oh. Starring Rene Zellweger, Greg Kinnear, Jimon Hansu, and John Voight. You know, real actors with awards and stuff. Same Kind of Different has Rene and Greg as a married couple with issues that are solved, it seems, when Rene sees homeless man Jimon, a man she'd previously seen in a dream, and sets out to turn his life around. And of course meant her own marriage at the same time. The Guardian says it best when it describes Jimon's accent as either Jar Jar Binks or whatever Robert Downey Jr. was doing in Tropic Thunder. <laughs> oh, God. But my favourite part of this scathing dressing down to, of this triumphantly terrible-looking trailer is when they write, I want to sew this film into a sleeping bag and kick it into a lake. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's a horrendous-looking thing. It yeah. really is so cloying, you I'm, know? I've never heard of it, but you're just describing that as, yeah. I'm going to have to check out a few trailers after listening to it. Yeah, I mean, I watch, you know, almost all the trailers that come down, so yeah. some stand out and some stand out for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> the filth silver medal goes to Deadpool. Uh, much like an 80s stand-up comedy routine, Ryan Reynolds' anti-hero tells non-stop poop and dick jokes for 90 minutes. With such assurance that you might miss the fact that you're really just watching yet another Marvel origin story. While the filth gold medal goes to Sasha Baron Cohen's Grimsby, or the uh, Brothers Grimsby, <laughs> depending on which title you happen to see. 
Uh, SBC outdoes himself uh, in this film, playing like a grubby Jim Carrey, performing a live-action Trey Parker and Matt Stone script. The escalating filth on display in this film is astounding, and the audience reaction to this was visceral, including one woman literally rolfing, as the kids say, um, in my movie theater. She was literally... Wow, you are right. Yeah. She was in the movie theater. She was literally falling out of her seat onto the ground. Amazing. Laughing. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I'd love to um, have seen it with that sort of audience. Yeah. While, while my, uh, my, my girlfriend, now my fiance, she was just pulling her hood over. She had a hoodie on. She was just pulling it over her head. Giggling, but a shame she was laughing. <laughs> <laughs> was this a deceit involving elephants? Uh, it was one of them. Yeah. yeah. It might have been the uh, the um, sucking the poison out scene as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, putting aside Harvey Scrimshaw's one scene, Wonder in the Witch, my favorite performances of the year came as a double act. The sweet, weird, flatulent friendship between Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe and the extraordinary Swiss army man. You spend almost the entire film with these two one of whom is a slowly decomposing corpse. And both actors risk the ridiculous at every turn. Uh, yet I found myself so invested in their strange journey of self-discovery. Radcliffe is funny and endearing, despite playing dead, or sort of dead, uh, the entire film. But Dano is the only living character, has a hell of a lot of heavy lifting to do as well. I adored this film for a lot of reasons. But it's hard to imagine it succeeding as well as it did without these two really committed performances. I think Radcliffe's really brave in the films that he does. The choices yeah, he makes. Yeah. He's used the luxury of Harry Potter. I mean, not only, you know, does he never have to work again, probably. Yeah, he's got that I've got nothing to lose kind of thing. Yeah, I'm with. an icon of a generation. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, he, and he's done it in a really good mm. way. But um, Paul Dano is, he's turning into a really, really good actor. Yeah. And uh, I said a few months back, I saw the uh, Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson film. Right, right, right. And he is so good in that. And it's so good to see him play someone who's, um, so nice and so, you know, he's obviously a little bit messed up, but someone who's quite nice. And I'm so used yeah. to seeing him play creepy or weird or slimy or odd or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it was actually really nice to see the humanity he has in him. But he was really, really strong. He came out of that really well. So I'm really looking forward to seeing him in Swiss Army Man. I haven't had a chance to see it yet. Right, right. So, yeah. Uh, well worth the look, man. Moral Conundrum Award goes to Eye in the Sky, uh, a film about a solitary decision, not in the heat of battle, but in the cold calculation of a time-dependent situation. Uh, uniformly excellent performances, including the final from Alan Rickman. It delivers tension through its entire runtime, and the complex rules of engagement and shifting consequences mean you're never fully on any one person's side. Uh, it's a really worthwhile film, and with a terrific Helen Mirren leading the charge, she's really good in this. And uh, I really recommend checking it out, because as a film of tension... I don't know whether I saw a better film uh, this year. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I've heard you say good things about this before, but yeah. um, that certainly knocks it up my list a bit yeah. further. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's time for worst film of the year. Okay. So at the beginning of the week, I had Ben Hur pegged as the worst film I saw in a cinema this year. Okay. Uh, this bloated, disappointing epic, minus the epic part, bored me to bits with a tidal wave of exposition before hitting me with a pretty extraordinary sea battle that almost redeemed everything that had, been, had gone before. Disappointingly, the film couldn't maintain that momentum, leading to a distinctly average tarot race and a silly as all get out ending. I mean, that ending was what the hell, you know? But hey, at least it was better than Office Christmas Party. <laughs> uh, that filthy lump of cinematic coal stuffed down my stocking this month by a hateful Hollywood determined to ruin my Christmas. It's like, well, Ben Hur might be 
worthy and kind of saccharine and uh, kind of boring, but at least it had that sea battle, and that was like, wow, that was engaging. Yeah. And I, there was nothing I, like that in Office Christmas Totally. Party. I remember that water rushing in and the guy tied to the front of the boat. Yeah. And uh, the the drummer on fire as he drums out the beat. So I remember those images long after I've forgotten anything about Office Christmas Party. Yeah, other than how much you hated it. Yeah, other than... <laughs> that'll, that'll live with you forever. <laughs> other than, yeah, other than my rage. Yeah. Well, the deceptively simple award goes to Brooklyn uh, for presenting an immigrant's tale from small-town Ireland to big-city America. CSA Ronan gives her finest performance, for me anyway, since Atonement, in a film that is totally understated in its optimism and life-affirming message, and it's happily absent of villains or cruelty, instead focusing on the endless opportunities life affords us to define our lives with every decision we make. And it really also uh, brings into focus how good of a screenwriter Nick Hornby has become. Right. He's a guy who did, you know, High Fidelity and About a yep. Boy. And his he's done the script for An Education and this, both of which I think are adaptations. And it's flawless, virtually, wow. this adaptation. He's really, really good. And a lot of confidence in writing that script, too. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and also just the um, color palette in this film, I love. Really, yep. really smartly done. So, yeah. Oh, great. All right, well, this is my final award, um, which is obviously Film of the Year. Mm-hmm. So there are films which you anticipate too strongly and you end up investing far too much future happiness in. And I think we've all been there, pumped for a movie that disappoints or perhaps even worse is, I don't know, okay. Uh, the Witch was a film I'd built up an insanely amount of anticipation for. <laughs> and I'm happy to report I wasn't disappointed. Full of creeping dread and gorgeous visuals, so cold and beautiful and so real. Uh, as well as cinema's spookiest ever goat. I, I reported that The Witch was easily my film of the month back in March when I saw it. And I also said it was my film of the year to that point. Well, nothing's changed. This gorgeous puritanical spook show remains my favourite film of 2016. And I'm super excited to see what Robert Eggers does with his next film, which, by the way, is Nosferatu. Ah, oh, nice. Yeah. And I've read a couple of interviews with him, and he seems like just about my favourite horror nerd right now. Like, he talked about... um designing costumes and stuff and how he um, would wear them to school and get bullied for it. Mm-hmm. And I just, ah, my heart went out to him in that moment. <laughs> but he also said um, he'd seen a picture of Nosferatu and made his mum, like, drive across town to get a copy mm-hmm. from when he was a kid. Because he was awesome. obsessed with it. So, you know, this is the guy who needs to be making those sort of films. Yeah. It's great. That's excellent. Yeah, yeah. I really, you know, I'm really drawn to people with that sort of passion. And, you yeah. Know, yeah. My final award uh, is the Love Story of the Year Award. And... Technically, this film was 2015, but I only saw it 2016. I think it was towards the end of 2015. And it goes to Carol. Uh, this is also very close to my film of the year as well. Uh, Todd Haynes can do this kind of thing in his sleep. Uh, and he is not only the most obvious choice, but also the perfect one for a film about two women falling in love in 1950s New York. Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara are exceptional. And if you haven't seen this movie, I urge you to see it and witness its slow burn effect for days afterwards not just because of the story, but also the technical brilliance on display and the subtlety of character. I could go into a lot more about this, uh, probably save it for a blog or something like that. But this film is quite eye-opening in its point of view and its pace. And it felt like watching a foreign film because um, it's a lesbian love story told by a gay man, adapted by a lesbian woman and you feel very much like an outsider in the best possible way of like discovering right 
just the the pace of the romance is completely different to a male gaze or even a heterosexual relationship is um it's it's fascinating but also aside from that the color scheme is incredible the cinematography is amazing and the music by carter burwell uh is fantastic there's this great melody and this is also something i have ranted about probably in the past but is kind of current composers kind of aversion to writing melodies really bothers me there's not a lot of great soundtracks you know yeah. what I mean like it's not something that's done now I mean this is more the case with action films oh totally but yeah, yeah. you know it all tends to be that Hans Zimmer kind of kind of thing whereas when's the last kind of great theme yeah look I'm going a little off topic here but I saw a really great um YouTube essay I guess on on exactly what you're talking about Right. reluctance of, of um, you know, modern composers to do interesting, distinctive music for movies. Yeah. And they were using the Marvel films as, as kind of a guide and mm. showing that, and it's probably, a, a part of the problem is the temp track. Yeah. So people put temp tracks on their movies and then fall in love with the sound of that temp track, yeah. which is by definition a track from another movie or from another source. So they end yeah. up with something that sounds like something else. Yeah. Um, you'll never, rem- I mean, people know what Raiders of the Lost Ark music sounds like or yeah. Harry Potter's music even, yeah. but nobody, nobody's got an idea what the music from uh, uh, Captain America or Iron Man sounds like. No, that's right. And, and it's, it's, it's a bit of a lost art, but, and this is done so well. Carter Burwell, obviously Coen Brothers regular, he does it really nicely in Carol, and uh, it almost serves like a, a love theme for the two characters. Um, but it's a wonderful film. If you haven't had a chance, check it out, and it's, uh, it, it's really, really masterfully told. Contemplate this on the tree of woe. Uh, now we're on to uh, our favourite part of the show, the tree of woe. Now, because this is the last tree of woe of 2016, we have stripped the tree bare, pulled off all our offenders from the, from the year, and we're going to nail up our, our, our most despicable offenders of the year the things that we've we've looked back over 2016 and said this is what needs to go up on the on the tree mm. so duncan what's annoyed you the most not this month this year it's been very fashionable and probably accurate to describe 2016 as the nadir of the western world in terms of the pop culture social media bubble mainly for two reasons it seems to me the first the rise of the u.s president-elect and secondly some giants of music, movies, sport, culture in general, all passing. But something I realized looking back for compiling these glittering spoiler alert awards is that 2016 has also been the poorest year for cinema in some time, possibly since we started this podcast. So ASA, after spoiler alert, I can't think of a cinematic year that failed to deliver more than this one. Of course, there's been some good films. Many of them seem to be released later in the year, maybe to get the Oscar bait. So I haven't had a chance to see like Hello High Water, Moonlight, Manchester by the Sea, or friend of the show Ken Loach's I, Daniel Blake. Um, but with the exception of La La Land, all of these are smaller, worthy, edgy, and dark with kind of indie credentials. One only needs to look at OJ Made in America, topping many critics' lists to see that an eight-hour ESPN documentary is showing the credible domination of TV over cinema. Independent American cinema seems to have delivered a lot of the better films, but this feels like a lot less breakout films from Europe this year. And if it wasn't for Star Wars, then the term blockbuster would have become exclusively synonymous with the term superhero. Sure. And with the exception of, from what I'm hearing, Captain America Civil War, I haven't seen it, but most of the stuff I've read and you've said as much, you know, apart from that, almost all of them have been a little bit disappointing. Uh, and in DC's case, you know, some of them have been critically anyway, downright awful. 
And in fact, the state of the modern blockbuster is of a concern to me. It has graduated from kind of popcorn movie in the 70s to kind of cash and sequel in the 80s to brand recognition reboots in the 2000s and extended universes in the 10s. Um, but the evolution of what the mass public want isn't an issue as much as what they have actually received this year. Um, so when the films of the decade are mentioned in 2019, particularly the big ones, you know, the, the marquee films that you want to, you're supposed to traditionally yeah. go to the movies to see, I predict few of them will appear from 2016. But in three years' time, you only need to look back at 2016's decomposed corpse hanging from the tree of woe to see why. Yeah, it's interesting that you say this because, like I say, it's been a great period for uh, low-budget horror with aspirations, you know, I yeah. guess. But for the bigger films, it's been a, your Dead Rise has been a terrible year. Yeah. Like, you know, I chose The Witch as my film of the year, which is a really fine film, but it didn't have a lot of competition in bigger films, I guess. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I had to go smaller indie low budget to find my film yeah yeah what do you got like um ghostbusters uh independence day resurgence the the born film yeah um, the last star trek came out this year yeah there's just there's not much you know there's civil yeah. war there's doctor strange there's yeah superhero uh, films yeah. Superhero, you know the superhero ones obviously rogue ones coming coming out yeah you know the, this time last year you know we were having like you know, Force Awakens was coming out. There was, you know, um, Mad Max had happened by this point. Yeah. You know? I just mean those kind of event films that you go yeah. and see. There really hasn't been anything at the movies to go, wow, I really want to go and see that. Because when I looked back at the list of movies that I had seen this year at the movies, um, there weren't a lot that were yeah. stood out. Agreed. Look, like my colleague, I've been glancing back through some of my previous podcast notes, and one thing stands out. I've seen a lot of dud superhero films this year. A lot. It started with Batman v Superman versus My Will to Live. Just a horrid, never-ending mess. It starts with so much exposition, there's no time for action. When we do finally get to the Batman v Superman of the title, the dull, muddy fight scene is over before it even gets going because, and no surprise to anyone, Batman and Superman have to team up to battle what is apparently a leftover cave troll from the Hobbit. Terrible. <laughs> Similar issues haunted the Suicide Squad, which not only drowned us in character reveals, but actually gave us some character backstories Twice. Twice. <laughs> What's going on? Then it was loads of walking, loss of helicopter crashes, which, by the way, hurt no one, and fight scenes you'll soon forget. And last month we had Doctor Strange, which had Marvel Studios walk us through a time-tested origin story with perfunctory female characters, meaningless magic, and like all of these films, a dreadfully undercooked villain who wants to destroy the world for incredibly murky reasons. Now, I'm not against superhero films in principle. After all, in the middle of this glut of mediocre tosh, as Duncan pointed out, Captain America Civil War came along and delivered on spectacle character wit and even gave us a solid third-act beatdown. So yes, there are good superhero films, but so many of the rest of the bunch this year need to lift their game. So until that happens, it's up on the tree, you lazy, exposition-heavy, villainless, super-time-wasters. But not you, Cap. You can walk. <laughs> and let's see you use those superpowers to avoid the sun and our flesh-gobbling vultures. <laughs> yeah, and... So really, I'm disagreeing with you. Yeah, you yeah. are. And, and I'm not surprised we ended up at that point. I mean, mine's just a broader thing of where I there's, there hasn't been anything that really captured me uh, yeah. as a marquee sense. But I also agree with you. Um, and, you know, we've talked on this podcast before many times, and I'd kind of got sick of my own ranting against superhero films and all the rest of it. So I was like, look, I'm just going to avoid them. And I have. Yeah. Like, I haven't seen Captain America, even though I've heard Captain America's good. It's and, pretty good. Yeah. And and I heard the same thing with Winter Soldier, which, hence why I watched it. 
because everyone you said it to me other people you know said hey you know what winter soldier is actually really good checked it out hey it is good mm. um probably same with civil war i'll get around to watching it sometime mm. but i also avoided batman versus superman and i avoided um suicide squad um i i probably would have avoided doctor strange if we hadn't decided oh well yeah. let's go down and watch that yeah because there was almost nothing else on that month. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, yeah, and uh, and that's also what's quite surprising is that the amount of times you and I are like, hey, what should we watch yeah. for, for something this month? We'll see what's on in the movies, and you're like, oh, kind of slim pickings. Yeah, we managed to avoid that last X-Men film, though, eh? <laughs> Pleased about that. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, exactly, there's another case in point. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's been a tough year, I think, 2016 overall. Yeah, I think it has, yeah. 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 Spoiler alert. And that's spoiler alert for this month and for this year. For this year, 2016, uh, a year of mediocre movies by the sound of things. <laughs> Basically. Hey, look, uh, serious thanks to everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, and why don't you jump on the Facebook and tell us, you know, hey, cheer up, you guys. There's actually a whole bunch of films you missed from 2016 that are really awesome you haven't mentioned. Yep. And, um, and we'll check them out gladly. Yeah, please do. We'll be taking a month off over January, uh, like we normally do, a bit of holiday, and we'll see you in February. Uh, usually at this point we do the movie of the month, but obviously we already know, you know, uh, Simon's was office Christmas party. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or we do movie of the year, but we've already talked about that too. So um, we'll just say thank you to everyone for listening, and we'll see you again next year. Yeah, cheers, everyone. And cheers, everyone. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And the music we're going out to, Simon. Yeah. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Uh, by Ronnie James Dio. Ronnie James Dio. <laughs> um, and this is actually uh, from Office Christmas yep. Party, uh, one of the more successful scenes, I think. Yeah. Fantastic montage. If only the film had had a little bit more like this in it, yep. uh, it would be um, slightly less rubbish. So this is, uh, when, uh, I mentioned it in the review, uh, someone dressed as Christ riding a horse through the party. Yeah. And this music kicks in. Great track by <laughs> Dio. Fantastic. Okay, well, thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will see you in 2017. Take care, everyone. Cheers. Gone astray.